Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 13 to 17. Mark chapter 2, we'll pick up our study there. Um, just last week, um, our fellowship group, and a fellowship group's a small group here at Fellowship. Uh, ours has been meeting for a while, and we reconvened after a summer break. And uh, we were anxious to hear about how our summers went, um, the challenges of summer, the travels of summer, the, the growth of summer. And uh, our group is, is a little bit different from, from other groups, as they all can be, but we, when we gather, we, uh, we always share a meal. So, so our group gets together, and whosoever house it is, we, we have a meal together. And uh, if generally, honestly, we honestly end up sitting at the table usually for two and a half hours. We're just at a meal together. And we have found over time that the meal is more than a meal. Uh, there have been moments when we've sat there for that long and um, we know something amazing has just happened in our time together. I've never, never known how to really articulate that, uh, but uh, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, Rob Howard sent me a quote by Henry Nowen, and I've shared this before, I believe, but it bears repeating. Nowen speaks and puts into words what we sense in our hearts. He says this, quote, We all need to eat and drink to stay alive. But having a meal is more than eating and drinking. It is celebrating the gifts of life we share. A meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table, we become vulnerable. Much more happens at a meal than satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Around the table, we become family, friends, community, yes, a body, end quote. There have been moments when our group has been at two, two hours, two and a half hours around a table and a meal, and we've shared, we've been vulnerable, we have talked about hurts and joys and gladness and sorrows and sadness, we've exhorted each other from the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ, and we come to the end of that time, and though it's late, I've noticed this, there are moments where it gets quiet, no one wants to move. And no, no one wants it to end. And we don't want to break this atmosphere of grace and connection and friendship that God has granted us. Now, meals play an important role in the story of redemption. You go from Genesis to Revelation, there's something about meals all the way through. You may recall after... Uh, the people of Israel are come out of Egypt. They have agreed to a covenant with God. And at this moment, uh, God invites Moses and the leaders to the top of the mountain. And what do they do? Why does he bring them up there? To share a meal. How about the Passover meal, which we're probably most familiar with, the Old Testament, to celebrate the coming out of Egypt, the Passover, the, the killing of the lamb and the doorposts and all of that, remembering what God has done in that meal, and it's looking forward to the, the capital T, Passover lamb that is to come. This summer, uh, I was in my just Bible reading, and I'm in the book of Isaiah, and man, that book is a downer, I'm telling you, in so many ways. It, it's just, you think of Isaiah, and we think of the Christmas verses, but that's not what Isaiah, most of it's about. But in the midst of that, in the midst of their darkest days, and you know why it was dark? Because of their rebellion. Because they had idols, because they rejected God. In other words, we don't want anything to do with you, God. Well, in the midst of that, God makes a promise in Isaiah 25. 
He says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine and choice pieces with marrow. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. Oh, that sounds like Revelation. Yes, it sounds like, because it's one book and one story and it's all going there. It should not surprise us as we study the life of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that when he shows up on the planet, there are going to be some meals that are more than meals. And we come to our first one here in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Two things I'd like you to keep in mind as we go through this, I think we will draw from the story itself. The first is this, y'all, if we truly understand the story, it is a staggering reminder of God's amazing grace that saves each one of us. Staggering, and I don't use that lightly. But secondly, Jesus uh, gives us his mission in in the most succinct of ways. He just says, here's why I'm here. And in so doing, y'all, he gives us an unforgettable image of our mission. Why am I on the planet? Well, he makes it very, very clear. Let me give you the context that we're in here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, is a unit of thought. And in this unit, Jesus is going to confront the religious leaders five times. Michael took the first one last week, 2, 1 through 12. Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. And they are like, "Mm, that's not, no one has that but God. Exactly. Well, they're upset with him. He's going to have four more of these confrontations. And if I had one word to put on the unit, okay, if I had a word to put on where we are, it would be the word opposition. Opposition. That's what's happening in the section that we're covering. Now, I haven't even read the text yet, but I got to stop here and go, okay, let's, let's apply this in some way, just the, the context that we're in. Um, you remember a couple weeks ago I said, when you're following Jesus, you'll know you're following Jesus when. It's kind of like you know you're a redneck when. Um, you know, we know we're following Jesus when certain things are true. You know, you are, we, are, we make choices in life out of God's glory, not our own, things like that. People matter more than things. I'm going to add this one, Okay. You know you are following Jesus when opposition to your life and the message of your life is normal and ever-increasing. Let me encourage you with that again. You know you are following Jesus when opposition to your life and the message of your life is normal and ever-increasing. Increasing. What do you mean the message of your life? I mean how you live and what people see and take away from the way that you live your life. You know, it's, I thought about this. It's not exactly a happy thought for the day, is it? I said, you know, and when I thought that, I thought, you know, I ought to create a website that you could sign up for, and I would send you a discouraging thought of day, a day, a discipleship thought a day. Your life will get harder and harder, right, as you go. And then, just to let you know how my mind thinks, I thought, man, that makes me think, and this is going to that makes me think of deep thoughts, by John Handy. Of course, I'm studying, and when I do, I go, I got to take a look at a few of those. And I, I got these two that just struck me, okay? Those of you who don't know this, know what this is. You know, a guy just came up with these ludicrous thoughts that you'll see what I mean in a moment. It's Saturday Night Live, you know, years ago, 80s. I'm dating, you know, I'm way back. Okay, he says, I can picture in my mind 
a world without war, a world without hate. And I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. <laughs> That's a deep thought, you know what I'm saying? And then this one got me. He says, okay, before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> I'm going to be sending these deep, dark thoughts on discipleship to you. All right, let's look at the second. This is the second opposition that Jesus comes to as he's stirring, he's stirring these embers of opposition. By the way, he lives his life. Two parts to this, verses 13 and 14, an unlikely disciple, an unlikely disciple, and then verses 15 to 17, an unacceptable meal. So there's the message, an unlikely disciple, an unacceptable meal. Follow along in your Bibles as I read God's word to us today. Mark continues in verse 13, an unlikely disciple. And he, that's Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. You know, this is reminiscent, isn't it, of the call of the four fishermen, uh, James and John, Simon and Andrew. They, 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 they follow me, and, 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 and they followed um, he leaves his tax booth. I'll talk about that in a moment to follow Christ. It's a command, you all. It's not, uh, hey, Levi, would you consider this option as a job rather than the one you're doing? No, he commanded him, follow me, and immediately he follows. We, it's very likely. This is not the first time he saw Jesus. It's not like this stranger came up and said this. He's in Capernaum. Uh, it's, I'll talk about this again. He's in a very busy area. There's a lot going on. He's collecting these tolls and taxes. Jesus is walking around the area. There goes Jesus over there. There's the, you know, he's teaching over here. The buzz is all about it. Remember when Jesus healed people? It's like the word spread. So Levi's familiar with Jesus. He's heard his message. And then Jesus comes and calls him. Uh, why is he an unlikely disciple? I think most of you know this. I'm going to unpack it a bit, and I still will not do this justice, but I will try. You would be hard-pressed to find a more despicable human being in Israel than a tax collector. This is, you, you couldn't find one that the, people, the Jews of that day hated more. Why is that? Let me give you these reasons. Number one, you know, Israel is under Roman occupation. So when your country is occupied by people, you don't like the people that are occupying your country. So they hate the Romans. But then the tax system goes like this. Rome would sell a tax franchise, or they would, they would set, it, they set and sell a tax franchise for a specific area. For example, it might be like this. You know, that the government says, okay, Williamson County, is, is this is a tax franchise. And um, Williamson County, th that county needs to give to the Roman government this much money every year in taxes. And a, a wealthy Roman would purchase the franchise. You know, franchises aren't new. They'd purchase the franchise. A wealthy Roman would say, okay, I can get that much money out of those people every year. And then that person, he would then hire tax collectors, you know, to be all around Williamson County to collect this money that he would then send to Rome, his boss. But the way that 
the tax collectors were going to get their money or, or, or make their profit is to charge more than the assessed fee. So the tax collectors, the way they got their money was they would go, okay, you owe this much money in taxes, and then they would add on to it and make you pay more. And that it was legal. You know, you couldn't, couldn't stop them from, from doing that. It was just rife, you all, with corruption. Uh, it's, it's like the mafia, you know, in that day where they're extorting people for money. They were so hated that tax collectors were considered like murderers and, and thieves. I mean, you're rubbing shoulders with Romans. You're taking Jewish money and giving it to the occupied people. Uh, Levi's booth, you know, was in a very prime location. This is Capernaum. This is a very heavily uh, traveled trade route. The fishing industry is there, right? We know that. The fish go everywhere. They go north, south, you know, to, to other countries. And so Levi, he was a tax collector, and he would assess a tariff or a custom tax on everything that came through. You come through with your wagon. It has four wheels. You got a four-wheel tax, and it's this. Bottom line was, though, it was arbitrary, and he would tax whatever he, he knew how much he had to have at the end of the year, but he would tax people more so he could make money off of those taxes. By the way, think about it. They taxed fish. They, no, you know, fish were taxed, tariff. Can you, can you imagine how the four fishermen felt when Jesus called Levi? Have you ever thought about that? Because they've probably interacted with Levi, <laughs> you know, and not in a good way. If I, if I describe it like this, and again, we've got to multiply this by 100, but you know, what if you get your letter in the mail and, and you've got to go register your car every year, right? It's time to renew your registration. What's the first thing you have to do before you go to the tax assessor's office and pay your registration? What do you have to do first? What do you have to go to get? You've got to go to your emission inspection. What if the emissions people operated like this? Uh, they knew that they had to pay so much to the, to the state, but they got every dime they could charge over that and they got to do it legally so so i pull in and and it's you know i know it's ten dollars and he goes that's 18 i go no it's 10 they go no it's 18 no it's i'm not going to give you this unless you give me 18 <laughs> you know and so you pull in he charge you 12 someone else pulls in they charge you 40 someone pulls in and they know they have a lot of money they charge them 50 you know how would you feel about that person and they could do it legally and you could do nothing about it you know you just go i can't stand you <laughs> this is wrong quite frankly it it was worse you know i'm just using a, what a rather silly example of you know money for for the for the jews it went way deeper you see what i'm saying it went way deeper the hatred for a tax collector how did jesus feel about levi He loved him. He said, follow me. <laughs> he became one of his band. Levi, by the way, is Matthew. So we get confused here. We're talking about Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, this tax collector. That blows my mind. It's generally agreed that Levi left more than the fishermen did because the fishermen could always go back to fishing. You know that? And they did. They actually did go back to fishing. They still used their boats and stuff. I'm going to tell you something. When Levi stepped out of the tax booth, and followed Jesus, there was nothing to go back to for him. No way. Burn the bridge. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar had been north of Italy massacring the Gauls, which he did. That was completed. He was returning back to Rome, and the Roman Senate 
felt that Julius Caesar had amassed too much power. They were afraid of him, and so they issued a command that he disband his army before coming back into Italy. And that if he didn't, he would be literally a traitor, an enemy of the state, if he entered Italy with his troops intact. He paused at the northern border of Italy at a small bridge over a really a rather small stream, a river. And he contemplated crossing that river because he knew if he crossed with troops, he was an enemy, he could never go back. It's said that he quoted from a playwright of his day, Meander, and before crossing he said to his troops and officers, let the die be cast. And he crossed the bridge. Now, we know today, and you know what that river was. I think most of you do. When I say it, you certainly will. But the name of the river was what? Those of you who know. It was the Rubicon. And so today, the idiom for us is, if we say, oh my, he crossed the Rubicon when he did that, what do we know we mean? Oh my, he just took a step and he is not ever going to be able to go back. Levi crossed the Rubicon. And the question the text asks of you and I, have you? Have you crossed the Rubicon? Well, what do you mean? Well, let's start here. Have you ever chosen to put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? To believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins, paid that penalty, was buried and raised again. And that trusting him, his righteousness is credited to you. Have you crossed the Rubicon? That's Because that's what that is. You never go back. You believe and are born again. Or how about this? Have you crossed the Rubicon? For me, I would say this. I, I really believe this in my heart. I, I believe I crossed the Rubicon when I was... 18, almost 19 years old in college, and I, I truly did, as best I could at that age, I said, I'm, Jesus, I'm yours, and I'm following. And, and maybe some of you have, you know, have made that decision. I know mo most of you have made that decision, but I have found in my own life, and maybe you have in yours, that there, there are times in life where I've had to go back to the Rubicon and remind myself of this decision that I made, and in a sense, what I want to call it, and renew that commitment I'm following you, Jesus. I cross the Rubicon. I remind myself again that you're my all. You see, maybe for some in the room, it's, it's just, there's these seasons, there's these times where I go back and you may need to go back to remind yourself and quite frankly, renew that commitment. I'm yours, I'm following, and there's no turning back. Well, Levi is a very unlikely disciple. Let's go on to the unacceptable meal. An unacceptable meal, 15 to 17. And it happened. He was reclining at the table in his house. Jesus was reclining at the table in Levi's house. Some people think it's Jesus at Jesus' house. I, most would say it's, it's, uh, it's Levi's house. I was he was reclining, meaning it was a celebration. It wasn't just a simple meal that they were having. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating 
with sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? We read that a lot, doesn't he? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, it seems in the story, one of the first things that Levi, Matthew, did when he began to follow Christ was invite his friends over for dinner to meet Jesus. Literally, it's what he did. Now, I just said that the tax collectors were the most despicable people on the planet. So how in the world does he have any friends? Tell me. Think about it. Who would be his friends? Absolutely. Absolutely. People like him, they're going to be his friends. The word sinners here, it's repeated three times. It's not, it's not how we think morally sinful, moral sinners per se. Technically, it is irreligious Jews. See, the Pharisees, I'll talk about them in a moment, are, are, are saying, why are these irreligious Jews and tax collectors? Why is he eating with them? Because the irreligious Jews are Jews who don't follow the law, which the Pharisees follow the law, you see. So that's what sinners is in this context. It's the first mention of the Pharisees. We'll come back to them again and again. Notice it's the scribes of the Pharisees. So some scribes were, of the, were, were, were part of the Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? Let's use it this way. They're the keepers of the law. It's a simple way. To, they're, they're, they're the keepers of the law. And think about it. That's not a bad thing. I want to keep God's law. That's terrible. You know, we always frame them up as evil. No, they, they want to keep the law. And they want to help people keep the law. Here's the problem. It's how they viewed the law and how they added to the law. Essentially, God gave us how many commands? Easy answer. Yeah, yeah you know, there was more per se, but we think 10 commandments. Okay, well, the Pharisees in time, they had oral traditions where they would say, you know, I think we, this is what the law, and if you're not going to keep, in order to, to, not, to not violate that, we need to put a fence over here that'll keep us from that. So let's do another law here and another law here. That way we'll never get to break that law. And over time, they developed and added, by the way, 603 more. You know, 10's hard enough. Now you got 613. There were 248 do's and 365 don'ts, which again, I thought, I'm going to send you a don't a day, don't a day. (laughs) You know, that you're going to don't do that. You're going to be in trouble. More importantly, how they viewed the law. They viewed the law as if we keep the law, we are righteous and therefore keeping the law is how you remain clean and keeping away from people who don't keep the law is how we stay pure and righteous with God, which makes sense that they're now looking at Jesus going, are you kidding me? You said you had authority to forgive sin and you are now eating and drinking with vile, dirty people? You can see why they're so upset because for them to even, you know, if a tax collector touched your home, it was unclean. Can you imagine eating? Go here. We know for them as well that a meal was more than a meal. Y'all, they didn't just gather to eat like this and recline and celebrate just to feed and drink. It communicated communion. It communicated acceptance. It communicated we're okay with each other. We're in, you see that, a, a, a meal in this cultural context sent signals out that we are, we're at peace, we're together. This is an intimate commitment and statement that I would eat with you. 
oh my goodness, were they upset that Jesus would do that. Well, Jesus' answer was a proverb of the day that needs no explanation. I'm a doctor. Doctors help sick people, not well people. We all know that. That makes sense to us today. You don't even have to think about what did it mean then. It means what it meant. And then he gives his mission when he says these words, it is not those who are health, healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The righteous. Now, we know the Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. Well, what does it mean he came to call the righteous? He, in this context, he's saying, I did not come to call the self-righteous. The ones who think they are righteous by what they do, that's not who I'm coming for, but to those who know they are not righteous, period, and need help. He's talking about the Pharisees, because they think they are righteous by keeping the law. You know, when Jesus and his disciples went in to eat this meal, in all likelihood, again, it's not in the text, but in all likelihood, they did not ceremonially wash their hands. We know Levi didn't, you know, and all those guys didn't. And, um, and so that would make the food unclean. So when you touch unclean food and eat it, you know, it makes you unclean. Matthew 15, Jesus is addressing this very thing about ceremonial washing. And you'll remember this, I think. He says to them, look, it's not what you eat that makes you defiled. You don't eat something and it makes you defiled. You know, it just it passes out. And then he says, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles you. Now, this turns it on his head. Now we go, wait a minute. That means the problem's not my outward behavior. My problem's inside of me. It's my heart, not the physical organ, but the center of my being, my soul, and who I am. It's, it's defiled, and that's what comes out. Now, here's the problem, okay? Go here. If my heart's the problem, how do you scrub the heart clean? You can't. It's tainted. What do I need? A new heart. Now, they weren't getting this here. I want to suggest that Levi was beginning to get this. You know, the old covenant, keep the law. Looking forward to the new covenant when God makes a promise that he's going to give us what? A new heart. Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Christ, said this, or God speaking, and Ezekiel said, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. This is the new covenant. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, notice that, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Put my spirit in you, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my, my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people. I will be your God. How about this? What's the new covenant? It's Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
righteousness secured, not by what you do, not by your obedience, not by keeping the law, but by faith in me, by trusting that I died on that cross, paid the penalty for your sins. I was buried and raised again for I had no sin of my own. And when you trust that what I did, I did for you, you are clothed in my righteousness. My spirit lives within you. And it's such a beautiful hint, is it not? And God says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. Y'all, the Christian life is not, I'm gonna do the right thing so I'm acceptable to God. It's God saves us, puts the spirit in us, and out of our heart, we obey. Just out of our will. For the Pharisees, righteousness is secured by staying as far away from sin as you can and by always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing and always doing it perfectly. No wonder they were honestly thrown up as they watched Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors. One lesson, just one, and then we're going to go to the table. You will know you are following Jesus when you are a friend of outcasts and sinners. That's it. You'll know you're following Jesus when you're a friend of outcasts and sinners. See, may we not distance ourselves from the very people God has put in our life to reach. Those who don't know him. Did you notice, excuse me, that Levi came to faith while he was at work? It wasn't a revival. It wasn't at church. He was just doing his job. And, and, and for us, you know, if you know Christ, please understand this. You don't, you don't have to go on a mission. Uh, you don't have to, you know, hope your friends come to church. You're on that job for a reason. You're, you're there not just to make a living, you see. But God has saved you and put you there that you might reach those you interact with day in and day out and bring them to him. Our mission fields, who's around us all the time, y'all, it's, it's where you work, play, we, we always say that, it's the, where you fill up with gas, if you can find it, and where you go and <laughs> shop for groceries and the, the person you run into on the street, you see what I'm saying? It's You'll know you're following Jesus when those people are your friends. Watch this. Not your project. Your friend. Jesus was not insincere when he had this meal. You know, I don't really like these guys, but I need to send a message to my future followers that they need to... Well, he, he was a friend to those who didn't know him. It's not a, it's not a project. There are people and they're... I was, I was talking to uh, Greg Ham and Pam in last service, and I said, you know, it's, this, I really struggle with this at times because I think about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not around that many outcasts and sinners, so to speak. You know, you think about that? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm with you. And Greg looked at me and said, well, half of them are outcasts and sinners. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> now, what about, what about, our circle of friends. They're there for a reason. I'm going to ask the ushers to come down and we're going to take the Lord's table. 
And uh, such an appropriate way to end this message and conclude it. As they pass the elements, I'm going to continue to ask you to think about some things. Take and hold the elements, and we will take them together. I think it's important often, every once in a while that we do, we just take it together because we're together at the table. And I'm going to give you some thoughts to ponder as this is, these elements are being passed. If you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, then you're welcome at this table. If you're a guest, please join us. Again, hold, hold the elements and then we'll take them together. You know in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled and we call it the fall, they chose disobedience to God. I, I want you to think about a few things that God pronounced the curses upon them. And then Genesis 3.22 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Verse 24, So God drove the man out. Now catch the language here. You're out of the garden. Driven out. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way back to the tree of life. You're out, and you can't come back in. Not this way. Of course, God also made the promise that he was going to send a man born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. Receive This is thousands of years in the, thousands of years in the, fu- in the future for them. And I read that passage because as we come to this table, okay, we're holding what's symbolic of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Symbolic of the fact that he he bore our sins. His body was broken for us on our behalf. And that's why we're now at the table with him. What have we said about the table? What have I already said about a meal? It's not just about eating and drinking. It's more than a meal. There's no more significant table than the simple things we hold here and what it symbolizes. That Jesus is now my friend. That I'm in relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And there's no other way into a relationship with God but by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is intimate with me. And God is intimate with me. God is my friend. This is what all this communicates. But I don't want us to leave here with this text going, man, you talk about an unlikely disciple. Levi was the pits. Now, what I want us to understand is that based on Genesis 3, Romans 3, we're all outcasts. We're all outcasts, y'all. Are you better than Levi? I mean, do you go, well, yeah, because I wasn't doing that when God called. Are you kidding me? Against a holy God? Levi worse than me? You know, does God look around and go, who's would be an easy convert? I'm going to take, no, that's a tough one over there. No, 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 no. We are all fallen outcasts. Take this in the right way. Despised, if I can say it that way, because of the sin you see. Now, God loves us, but in sin, Listen, we're out. But for the grace of God. Symbolic in these elements we hold. Jesus given on our behalf.
Jesus crossed the Rubicon for you and me. He did. You understand when Jesus stepped from his, his throne and took on human flesh, do you understand he can never go back? Do you know that Jesus is enfleshed for eternity? He took us on. How valuable are we that he would do that for us? Maybe there's a Rubicon you need to cross. And again, these come up in life. I need to take this step. Some of you, it may be baptism. Just talked about it. You just never, you never followed the Lord in obedience in being baptized. It could be the Rubicon you need to cross. Hey, everybody, God saved me. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. Last thought. Have you ever pondered the thought that Adam and Eve's disobedience was in the context of a meal? This is amazing to me. It was an eating issue. It was a meal. And we read this story of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, and that theme goes all the way through. And then Jesus says, I want you to celebrate this meal as long as you're on the planet. Y'all, the Lord's table is a big deal. What it represents and what it costs to secure fellowship with God. Lord, thank you for this meal that commemorates your life, death, and resurrection. That proclaims your life, death, and resurrection until you come again. We are all unlikely disciples. All of us are. And by your grace, you have brought us to your table. And so we come with great humility and gratitude. Eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord. stand together. I'll send you out. Reminder again from now and he continues along this theme and writes, quote, the table is one of the most intimate places in our lives. It's there we give ourselves to one another. We invite our friends to become part of our lives. We want them to be nurtured by the same food and drink that nurtures us. We desire communion. Strange as it may sound, the table is the place where we want to become food for one another, end quote. What a be- beautiful image. And even as we've taken this table, we recognize y'all in life, Jesus is the meal. Don't get grossed out by that. You know what I mean by that. He's our everything. He sustains us. We nurture ourselves upon him. Jesus is the meal, the feast by which we are one with him and one with another. But do not forget this. He's invited us to his table to enjoy the feast. And he's left us on the planet so that we would bring others to this table. May we do so as we follow the servant king. God bless.